Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Amazon's Black Stories podcast, where we highlight the stories of black designers, researchers, and creative minds from all around the world. I'm your host, Justin James Lopez, and today I'm joined by Ramey Mariex, where we discuss the importance of recognizing those who support you and developing equitable mechanisms to support those that come behind you. Let's hear his story. Well, Ramey, thanks for joining me. This is a really exciting episode for me and for the listeners for a number of reasons that we'll get into throughout this this episode. But, you know, for starters, let's talk a little bit about, you know, your current position. You shifted out of entertainment into tech, but talk to us about your position currently. Yeah. So right now I'm uh, executive creative director. And what that really means is that it's my responsibility to elevate the quality and the storytelling of all of our customer facing communications in terms of campaigns and creative across the world. So it's a lot of the show campaigns for our originals. It's helping shape and define the brand work with our head of brand. And it's really working hard to kind of build a narrative about why Amazon Prime Video is a place that people should care about and what reasons they care for it and how they kind of see us in the world and the different places that we show up. I feel like that's a, a common theme with Amazon because we're there's spreadings in so many different spaces. It's a constant battle to fight for relevancy of like, why, why would you come here for this? No, for sure. So getting into this space, let's take a, a like a, a trip down memory lane, right? So getting into this space when you were younger, I saw a previous interview where you talk a, a bit about this of growing up in a really creative family, having a lot of really creatives from different spaces, whether it's music, whether it's art. And having that kind of infrastructure is something pretty unique because none of the guests previous to you so far on this show have had that, you know, that platform to start from. How much of that helped you make the decision to have creativity as what you do for life? I think it had a lot to do with it. I think you know, my family is filled with with one of two types of people, either people who are professional creatives, meaning that's what they do for a living, mm-hmm. or, or people who should have been. <laughs> so it kind of expresses itself in different ways in the family. But the, the best way I could describe it, and it's kind of like a very central feeling I have about my family, which is they're the kind of people like if you get all of them in a room, it's just loud and interesting and chaotic. But there's always stuff that kind of emerges from those conversations and the and the ways that we deal with each other. It's the kind of group that will like break into song. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like almost like musical style. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and that, that kind of stuff happens on a regular basis. And, and by extension, a lot of the people that I have spent my life with that are not like blood relatives, including like my wife and like close friends that I've had for for decades. A lot of them have those similar traits. So. Like even one of my one of my fondest memories of of my brothers because I have uh, two brothers, one older, one younger, and and good friends of mine is just driving down the street. I don't even know where we were going. This is like probably twenty years ago, and just breaking into song, singing the the Gummy Bears theme song, which sounds ridiculous, but this is the kind of like nonsense that usually goes on around my house. So yeah, that's that's kind of it. It inspired me, or I would say, shaped me into thinking about things from a creative perspective, 
it isn't the only kind of influence in my my creative life, but I definitely think it was kind of the foundational one. It's beautiful because what's what's interesting and what I've what I've heard from you know from our interactions previous and, and just in general is a lot of what growing up in that type of family provided you is that individuality, that freedom to be who you want to be. Yeah. Right. And I say that you know loading up the question. Right. I say that because you weren't always sold specifically on being a creative, right? At some point, you wanted to be what? An astrophysicist. Yeah, for a long time. You know, I have a very technical side and kind of it, that technical side, it's helped me as a, as a professional creative because it, it let me, once I really like leaned into that side, it let me understand tech a lot better and be a better thinker in the tech space through the lens of creativity. But yeah, I, I started very much wanting to be an astronomer and astrophysicist and I still like that's still a very deep love of mine. So I still have lots of people like around me that are in that space professionally. But it's interesting because there's there's it, they seem like very different professions and, and obviously they are, but there's some interesting overlaps in the way that I, I've always thought about them. And one of the things that's maybe unusual about the way I've always thought about astrophysics and, and astronomy is and cosmology in general is that it's always given me a sense of peace because from a very young age, I like knew a lot about it. It was like, like I said, something I studied pretty heavily. And so that sense of peace, I think comes from the scale of that understanding of the spaces that we like had live in and have always lived in and the way that the universe around us works. And that is similar to the sense of peace that I get when I am creating things. And so there's some like very interesting emotional thread between those two professions and those two kind of ways of thinking. But I don't think I've really figured out the whole of it, but it has definitely occurred to me a number of times. Yeah, I think that it's interesting to draw those parallels and not make it such a mutually exclusive thing. And not just those two, but in many things like for for me, for example, like when I moved into more of like the the media creation, like graphics space, I, I said, you know, I'm going to do this because I, I hate things like math and science. <laughs> on yeah. And I realized it's all math. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So it was, it was really interesting because it wasn't that I, I hated math. It's like I hated the application that I was using it for. And when I start to use it in this, you know, in this more, I think what we consider, you know, the connotation of creativity you know, in that, in the creative way, then it, it became a lot simpler for me to swallow of like, yeah, of, of course I can understand like these, these complex, you know, like math equations that create these, these scenes, even from like audio perspectives, all of these things are, are really technical, but it just comes down to what's important to you because, um, yeah, that's, that's just something that's really, really interesting to me, but drawing the parallel between like astrophysics and what you do now, I think that that, that idea of finding something that brings you peace yeah. is something that's a, a key takeaway for me because we spend so much time. I heard this the other day. Someone said, you spend most of your time doing things you hate to pay for things that you don't need. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I was just like, okay, mind blown. I have to rethink life. Yeah. But <laughs> you shifted, right? And what was it that actually caused you to go, you know what, maybe I... Maybe I don't want to, because you mentioned you still have this fondness for it, but you don't do it as a profession. So what was it that made you kind of shift there? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. And I, I 
kind of looked backwards a lot to kind of see where that that shift was because I don't think it was as obvious back then as it is or more obvious it is now. I think there's two big points. And the first big one was, you know, when I was about seven, my father, he was big on taking us on adventures, both big and small. So that I either travel across the country or we're like going 20 minutes away from our house, but there would always be like these adventures. And one of them when I was about seven was for, uh, he took us to the set of Back to the Future in the middle of the night. And they were filming kind of the scene where the car goes back in time for the first time in the mall. And I didn't know what it was. Like nobody had any context because the movie didn't exist at this point, right? But I think both seeing that as a, as a, as a kid and understanding something I think I did not understand about creativity at that point was that it didn't have to be something you did alone. And that, you know, up until that point, I'd always seen like, you know, painters and artists and like musicians. And there seemed to be this kind of inherent loneliness in the thing that you were creating. But I think when I actually set foot on a set, I realized that this was this weird and very interesting amalgamation of human talents and like intention. And that changed my point of view about the scope and depth of creativity and, and like what it was as a, as a profession to some extent, but more as a human endeavor. And then later, so that was probably the first kind of twitch that I got that that was something I really wanted to do. And then later I joined, this is probably about four or five years after that, I joined my mother on set because she's a costume designer and wardrobe designer for the first time and, and kind of like worked a summer on a set. And I was just, I think it was like day 0.5 that I was just like, I did not know this would be this much fun. It was like going to camp. And it's always, I mean, even, even in the most difficult like shoots I've ever been on and worked through, it's always been that way. There's always this like sense of just an immediate fun for me being on a set and like collaborating and creating with other people that's never gone away, which is, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm glad for because it's, it's also extremely difficult if you're doing if you're doing things that you should be doing, which are like new and interesting things that nobody has done before. But yeah, that's probably the two points where the the shift in my mind started like swinging. So new and interesting things that nobody has done before. This is something I want to kind of shift to to now. And you have mentioned in the past that one of your favorite parts of the creative process is the pitch, right? And one of your favorite pitches was when you pitched to Lexus, to the Lexus execs, if I'm correct on that, recalling that, to uh, Black Panther, yeah. collaboration with Black Panther and that experience. So talk to us about how you, how you did that. Obviously not the pitch itself, but like, what was your thought process going in that and how was it received? Obviously we know the ultimate end result, but your experience in, in that space I mean, I, the simplest way I would describe it is that I had had the good fortune along with a, a few like leaders in my creative team to read an early draft of the Black Panther script. We, we went to Marvel Studios and I'm like, they, they took our phones and our shoes and our car keys or whatever else they could think of <laughs> and gave us like, I, I think like an hour or two to read the script. And so after I finished that script that day, I was like, I mean, I was excited about the film in the first place. But after I read that script, I was like, if they make this film the way that this, this is written, 
It's it's instant hit. I would watch it like five times right away. And so that kind of steeled me that I needed to... It's interesting because obviously I worked, you know, I worked at an agency at the time and the agency had a client, which was, you know, Lexus. And, you know, working on behalf of a, a client like that, you're, you're, you're obviously trying to do the best for, for Lexus. But I think after I read that script, I was, I kind of had a split duty after I read it because I, I felt I, I had to do something for these filmmakers and I had to do something for, you know, the people that come from where I come from and, and, and you know, have the background that I have because it would mean something to us. And like, it, it was one of those things where I, I, I acknowledged, like in my own mind, at least, that it might not mean something to people who were not black or like didn't work close to our culture. But for us, it was like, it, it, the, the thing I read, and this is probably the heart of it, and this is why I fought so hard to win this work, was I read not a recounting of our past, but kind of a retelling of what our past could have been in a super fantastical, like obviously over the top kind of like superhero way. But it was one of the first times I'd ever read something where we were not subjected to horrors. And like we had a root that was deeper than that. And I think that that just like rang a bell with me. And I was like, I, I'm not, I'm not, a, I mean, I'm sure I'm, as a creative, I'm an overly emotional person. But when I read it, I was just like struck by it. And so after, after that, I was like, okay, I don't know what it's going to take for me to like build this into something great, but I am going to like put my absolute highest effort into doing so. And I went and hunted down all of my mentors, all the people that I respected and without, you know, necessarily like breaking any of the details of, of confidentiality, I just kind of tried to mine for as much thinking as I could about how to make this not just work, but make it like ring a bell across the universe. And so that's kind of how that I started on that path. And when I think about like pitches in general and why I get excited, it's because I'm a super excitable dude in the first place. And so and I'm super passionate about things. And so I think when I see a pitch and see an idea that, that can be pitched into the world, what I get excited about is there's something like new that I can introduce into the world and I can help like shepherd into the world. And that is extremely exciting when you see it before anybody else does. And granted, there's a lot of like red tape and complexity between where you start at seeing a great idea and seeing a great like thought move into culture and move into the world to getting to actually ship that into the world. But that's all the fun part. Like the most interesting part to me is just that moment where I'm like, oh shit, nobody's ever done this before. Nobody's ever seen anything like this before. And all of the gifts and all of the skills that I've built up in my my life and all the experiences that I've, that I've been able to have, like put me right here to make this thing big. And so that's why I think pitches in general are exciting to me. And honestly, I think when I'm really like on fire, my passion is pretty infectious. And so I usually like pull people along. And the more interesting and more different and more new the thinking is or the, the, the thought that we're trying to put into the world, the more people will fight against it and the more fear there is. And so managing all of that is also part of the game. But yeah, that's, that's how I think about pitches, generally. 
No, yeah. Thank you for that. I'm not going to lie. It, it, your overall energy is just super infectious because I was, as you were just kind of telling that story, I was getting really emotional myself, just kind of thinking about it. And just like from my perspective and where I lay, lie on the, like on the diaspora, yeah. just like for learning the history of like how I came to be in the world, period. Like mm-hmm, the people mm-hmm. that, you know, they look like me, skin from a skin complexion thing, yeah. from a phenotype thing. It's like we didn't exist until like a lot of messed up things happened. And that's right. That's right. And it was just like I felt all of that. But one thing that I did want to um kind of touch on in that in that story is like, and this is something that I personally deal with, and I, I think a lot of people do as well, but I just kind of wanted to ask the question, like asking the, the, the question is like sometimes it can feel like even though it's the right thing to do and, and even though it feels like like it's super intuitive, it can be difficult to to feel like you're not taken serious as a person that's, you know, black, brown, when you advocate for more diverse and equitable representation because it's almost like people expect you to do that because it's a diversity thing and where you exist on the socio-ethnic spectrum, mm-hmm. like it's, you know, how does that, how has that impacted the work that you do? It's interesting. There's a saying, and it was at like half of a book that I've already written, which I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever release it, but I need to finish it just so <laughs> I, it's done in my my own heart. It's a saying that I've had for a long time, but it's that being black is a whole second job, and I think that's doubly true in the last probably couple of years. Definitely since George Floyd was murdered, but just in general, as people become more aware of the just consistent and common injustices that black people have to like just experience on a regular basis. I think the the thing for me is I don't particularly enjoy being professionally black. And what I mean by that is I love being black, but professionally black means that in addition to kind of being a constant translator between your own culture and language and like personality you have in translating that into like a corporate environment where people will understand you in their own ways there's this need for you to if you're doing what i think i like someone's like in my position should be doing there's a need for you to both mentor and like not just like push a ladder back down so people can get up but like push a lot of ladders back down and try to like find new ways for people to get into the industry and get the experiences that the, that you know will propel their careers quickly, but also do it in a way that is frankly unbiased and, and is not like showing favoritism. And I think that's all complex and it's it's not it's not easy. But I think in some ways, when I think about what I do for a living and like what why I'm in this this moment, I think that's part of the reason why I've been gifted like with this ability to do any of this work, because I want to do it. I, I I've came up in an environment where there were there, it's a weird thing because I came up in an environment where there was a time when I started in this career where there were no black people around me and I was uncomfortable being the only black person in the room. And that was years. And, you know, not just uncomfortable, but also like, you know, it was early in my career. So it was like the lowest ranking person in the room and the person that even, you know, outside of all the other circumstances, like no one probably listened to in the first place. And then I realized somewhere along the line, there came this weird moment because I had spent so much time in spaces that were basically non-black or, or, or just exclusively white and male that I realized that uh, there was this dude, he's still a friend of mine, this dude named Marcus, came and worked at this agency I worked at. 
And it was just us. It was like two of us. And it was like 150 people at this agency. And I realized that I had spent so much time in that space where it was just non-black that I was all of a sudden uncomfortable when I was not the only black person in the room. And that took a bit to unwind because I was like, it's not that I like, I like hanging out with my own people. What is going on here? But I think it's just, a, you know, you get used to certain kinds of situations and you get used to, to being the only one. And all of a sudden, in seeing someone else put on the mask of, I mean, whiteness, for lack of a better term, you see yours much more clearly. <laughs> and I think that was probably the thing that unsettled me. Like I was like, yeah. oh, so that's, that's what I look like. That's what and it, and, like. and it's, it, it's a weird thing because again, I both understand the necessity of it, yeah. but I also, I think that was the point at which I started to realize that I needed to find a way to unwind that mask because I started to understand what it was actually like doing to my soul, which is like, it was kind of splitting me in a way that I did not intend to be split. And ultimately it was affecting my work and you know, affecting like how I saw the stories that I told and why I, why I told them. So yeah, it's a, it's a weird complex thing to be who we are in, in like in the spaces that we operate in. Like you mentioned earlier, the more northward I go, the more rare it is to see people like me in those spaces, which makes me even more determined to put people in these spaces as quickly as possible that come from my background and that, that are just, it's not even really from my background, that are just not homogenous. The amount of homogeny, especially in tech, in leadership is, it's staggering. It's, it's, and there's no explanation and, or, or if you do get an explanation, it's, it's one of the more offensive explanations you could find. So yeah, that's, that's part of my dedication to kind of fixing that as quickly as possible. I, I totally get that. I think the, the idea of being the only, and I've, I've spoken, you know, at length about this to, to many people. And I think previously on the show too, but like, there's almost this psychological trauma that's created there where you know, I, and, and you, you know, I know you've been big into poetry. I, I used to do all through college and I think post-college too, I was on slam teams. Yeah. And there was this one thing where I kind of talk about this idea in this poem that I wrote that was called Heritage. And it was like, when will I ever be free from this idea of me that's embedded with a we every time I speak? Yeah. And it was just like, it went over a lot of people's heads. But I was like, it's like, Every time I speak, I speak for everybody that looks like me, but I don't see them and it's so hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then when you introduce someone else, I mean, like, it's like, well, I thought I was the person, like, why do we need another? Yeah. And it's all, almost yeah, create yeah, yeah. for me, at least, you know, my experience, like sometimes it can create this, almost like this, this abrasive, like nature initially for me where I go, why... Instead of, you know, welcoming that site to your point of like, you've been there for, for by yourself for so long that you're like, why are you here? Yeah. And then you're like, damn, am I, have I become a part of the problem almost? But as you continue to grow higher and higher right now, because now you're, you're, you're at, you know, this director, you're a space moving, you know, at some point to the, this VP space. When you think about the ladders that you push down. Yeah. Right. How was your experience with the ladders being pushed down for you in climbing that? That's a great question. I think the delusion of self-sustaining, you know, pull up your own, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. If you had asked me this question like four years ago, I would have been like, nobody, nobody like helped me do it. And then 
I've, I've grown and gotten smarter. <laughs> and uh, what I would say is, uh, it, it is a boatload of people. Like, it's a boatload of people. And the thing that's interesting about that boatload of people is, a lot of them, I did not realize they were helping me at the time. And it didn't feel like they were helping me at the time. There are people that, you know, and it's weird. Some of them did it intentionally, meaning that they were like, they saw something in Raimi and they tried to find a way to like move me along either in my own head or in very practical ways, like in my career. And some of these people helped me along because they were bad managers or because like they made me like rethink things because they were so like bad at their jobs in some way or another. But yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of people that helped me along and that's not counting, you know, my family who's, who's put up with a whole lot of nonsense for me. And I think, you know, my family's had a running gag that I'll either be a, a billionaire or homeless, but not in between. <laughs> so, and I think, you know, the, there's a lot of that has helped me along. And, you know, I, 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 I try to think now about what things would have looked like if I actually had no support and actually had no like helping hands along the way. And I can imagine there's a, just a lot of people that I could not see ever. As a matter of fact, there was one cat that got me into like one of my first tech jobs. I thought this guy did not like me at all. Like had no <laughs> interest in me and thought I was like a waste of time. Yeah. And it was another black dude. And it wasn't until like six years later that I like just heard through the grapevine because it was after I had moved on from this, this organization. And somebody mentioned that because he was part of my hiring, you know, loop. Somebody mentioned to me that I had worked with them. They were like, yeah, you know, when we were interviewing you, he was the guy that was like, there is no way we are not hiring this person. Like, I will fight to the death anybody that like thinks that he's not ready for it or any of this other stuff. And, it, but as a, as a personality, he let none of that like slide at all. Like none of it came through. I didn't, this guy was like super, super hard on me. And again, looking back on it now, I'm like, I kind of get it. Like I get what you were trying to do. And it was never, we even, even today, it was that we've never had a conversation about it or, or talk through it. But I think I understand it. I mean, I think that, you know, looking back, I see a lot of those, Either, either, you know, helping hands up or somebody like grabbing me by the collar and dragging me up. <laughs> yeah. One of the last things here is when you, when you think about the ladders that you're, you are now pushing down, you, you did mention this one thing earlier, this idea of trying to do that, but also presenting that in an equitable way where there's no bias, there's no nepotism involved, which is, I felt that when you said that, I was like, oh man, I feel that. But when it comes to navigating that, how have you managed to balance those two ideas? I think the, the simplest way for me to describe it or how I think about it is it's almost an equity question to a certain extent in the sense that when I think about what a lot of people walk into, you know, their careers with in terms of support, finances, education, even an understanding of how to be like, quote unquote, professional. I think that you will find through social inequities that quite a few people that look like me do not have those skills. And they were never taught those skills. They weren't passed down those skills because we were specifically excluded from having those. Mm. And so sometimes when I think about 
what that what that bias that I'm I'm the intentional bias that I'm including is to make sure that we have a set of standards that we're operating from. And it, uh, the standards are not intended. I'm not when I say professionalism, I'm not talking about like the clothes that you wear or even the way that you talk. It's more about the way that you work and how effective you are and how efficient you are and how how you think about things. And I think that, you know, you have a lot of people that come from, you know, especially from white males, from educated environments. They just, they have been taught from very, very early ages how to operate in these environments. And these environments are specifically designed for them. And so when I see folks that don't have those skills or that I think can be sure those, those, those kind of traits can be sharpened in, those are the things I go after. When I say that I'm mindful about bias, what I mean by that is I have zero tolerance in my own self for, and I'm constantly checking it, for things like giving opportunities to people that look like me because they look like me or overlooking people that, that may have already like had everything baked. Because the, the other thing is, as much as I can say things about a systemic issue like racism or systemic inequality, that doesn't apply to every individual. And every individual must be taken on their own merits. But I can say, broadly speaking, if you ask me, there are not enough Black women in tech or in entertainment. There are not enough Asian women or trans-Pacific Islanders that are in these spaces. And there's a reason why that happens. And so my job, when I think about pulling people up, is to not just make equality for equality's sake or diversity for diversity's sake. Because my profession is storytelling, it's really important to me that we have storytellers that actually reflect the real world. And the reality of the real world is that it is not completely inhabited by white dudes. It is inhabited by this wonderful spectrum of humanity. And I think that we need more of those storytellers in these spaces. We need more executive creative directors and the creative uh, executives on the, on the studio side. We need more heads of studios to be people that do not strike off as homogenous across the entire industry, which is in a lot of cases what's been going on. I think it's obviously changing in some important ways. But when I think about pulling folks up, it is that. And it is also, if we're being really honest, it's also not just a social inequity based on race. It's also social inequity based on financial background and upbringing. So those things all factor into it in my mind, but all of it has to be very, very carefully measured against, am I actively doing something that is excluding folks because of some like broad perception that I may have? That's a, like a big red flag. And it's even when I'm building other leaders, it's something I'm very intense about letting them know that they have to. It is not a, a one-off thing where you go, oh, I, I'm not biased. And so I can just move on. It's a constant revolving cycle where you must ask yourself, is this a biased decision? Is there something influencing my decision that is not fair? It has to keep going and going and going. And I think the more power, quite frankly, that you get, the more intentional you have to ask that question because it's easier and easier for you to make biased decisions that you then ignore that they are biased. That is amazing, amazing advice to walk off on is right. As the higher you get, the more you have to be intentional about 
the biases that may be creeping in because your decisions carry a lot more weight, right? And I think that the last thing that I, I'm going to take that gem with me, but like the, the last thing is that idea that you mentioned of shifting the conversation from a lot of times it, it's ability, but it may not be ability, it may be access. And when you look at it the wrong way, then you completely create this exclusionary boundary that, you know, may or may not be, you know, valid because what you're actually asking, and I, a lot of the things that you mentioned kind of hit home for me because I also come from a, you know, I'm just going to say poor because I don't even think yeah, there was, a, there was like a social yeah. class for how poor we were growing up. So it was just like, I get that. I remember going to college and getting to, I got, I was the first person to go to college in my family and getting to this elite university with, you know, all of these, you know, these, these white rich prep school kids that had so much more information. And I thought I was stupid because I just didn't have the same books. I, you know, I had outdated books. That's where I was studying from. And I didn't have the same resources. So when walking in, when they just inherently knew things, I, I, I registered that as, oh, they're just smarter than me. Yeah. And, you know, and, and yeah. not realizing like, no, they had this book when they were three. I, That's you know, right. I didn't yeah. get it until I was 17. So, right. you know, so it's, it's one of those things. So I love that you hit on that aspect of it as well. Mm-hmm. Ramey, thank you so much, so much for, for your time here and for joining me on the, on this episode. Oh yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is fantastic. Yeah. 